Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Take it, shoot that, shoot that. I'll be going in the middle. Welcome to City Game, your Brooklyn Nets podcast on WFAN and Radio.com. Here's your host, Steve Lichtenstein. And hello again, everyone, and welcome to the season finale episode of the City Game podcast, the show for Brooklyn Nets fans. I'm Steve Lichtenstein of WFAN.com, and folks, as you'd expect, these last several days since my last recording have been downright depressing. No other word for it. The Nets lost the last two games of their best of seven second round series to the Bucks, including the deciding game seven on Saturday night at Barclays Center, 115 to 111 in overtime. Spoiling my final game as a credentialed media member for WFAN. That's right, folks. This isn't just a season finale show. It's the end of the City Game podcast. I'll get to that bit at the end of the show, but mostly I'll be talking about what went wrong for Brooklyn, besides the obvious injury bug, of course. I'll be answering your questions about it in one last listener mailbag segment. And for my final special guest spot, I've got every fan's favorite announcer back. The GOAT, really. The one and only Iron Eagle will be joining me in a few minutes. So, since I can dispense with the normal pleas about subscribing and commenting, let's get to this. Number one, like I said last week, the ultimate survivor of this NBA tournament won't necessarily be the best team, but the luckiest. If you think it's just the Nets, go ask Joel Embiid's torn meniscus. I'm telling you, no team would be able to overcome the loss of two superstars like James Harden and Kyrie Irving. Sure, you know, that's had Kevin Durant go bonkers, but, you know, he could only do so much. And yes, Saturday night was another historic performance, punctuated by that game-tying bucket with one second remaining in the fourth quarter to send Game 7 into overtime. Man averaged 35.4 points per game in the series, played all 48 minutes in Game 5, and all 53 in Game 7. But he needed help. Who was going to step up to shoulder some of that load? Certainly wasn't Joe Harris, we'll talk about later in the show. The production out of all the complimentary pieces was, you know, inconsistent at best. Jeff Green was spectacular in Game 5, but he was playing through a painful case of plantar fasciitis, which kept him out of the first three games altogether. He started Game 6 and went 2-for-9 from the floor. And on Saturday night, he was one of two players Coach Steve Nash used off the bench, neither of whom even took a shot. You heard that right. 
Not only do I believe that no team has ever played a postseason game with zero bench points since the league started tracking the data in 1971, the net subs had zero field goal attempts. Zero. And what does that say about the trust Nash had in his roster? Remember how all year we were promised that all the Nets' injuries would pay big dividends down the road because these guys could be useful in a playoff pinch? Well, that was a load of baloney. That Nash didn't even trust Nick Claxton for more than one second when the Nets were getting pounded on their defensive glass all night? I mean, what was he thinking? Look, I do give Nash credit for pulling Bruce Brown into the starting five because, you know, Brown did all his Bruce Brown things. Hounded Buck star Chris Middleton in an awful 9-for-26 shooting night. Hustled after offensive rebounds and 50-50 balls, one of which he put back for the only Nets points in the overtime session. But using Green to guard Giannis Antetokounmpo when Blake Griffin got into foul trouble? I mean, on no planet could Green guard Giannis, whether he was in that condition or completely healthy. I get that the Nets were concerned about floor spacing with both Brown and Claxton on the floor, but there had to be ways for Nash to mix and match so that the offense wouldn't have gotten in the tank. And it's not like the offense was vintage Nets to begin with. They averaged 107.3 points per 100 possessions in the series, 10 points lower than their regular season rate. Well, not having two of their big three for much of the series obviously factored into that. Harden, of course, came back for the last three games of the series, but you know, he could barely move out there. During the regular season, he averaged about 17.5 drives per game. In the last three games, he was tracked by NBA.com with seven drives per game. You know, his physical limitations really put a huge damper on the Nets' pace in Game 6. Nearly 20% of Brooklyn's shots occurred within the last four seconds of the shot clock. It's because the Nets rely too much on Harden walking the ball up and dribbling in place for a bit before getting to any actions. I thought the Nets did a better job of pushing it up early Saturday night, using others to bring it up and looking for lead pass opportunities but they still ended up taking 19% of their shots in the last four seconds. In the regular season, that number was a little below 8%. Too often, it was left up to KD to go out there and make a great play, bail him out. Again, that's not a sustainable plan in the playoffs against a really good defensive team. So with Harden a shell of his former self, converting on just 30.6% of his field goal attempts and just... 19.2% from three-point ranges? Why did Nash rest him a grand total of 10 minutes over the last three games? How did he end up one rebound and one assist shy of a triple-double on Saturday night? Well, here's what Nets backup guard Landry Shamit had to say about his bearded teammate. Hey, Landry, sorry for another James question, but you know, even though he wasn't 100%, didn't shoot it well, in what way did you see him have the biggest impact in helping you pull out game five? His presence and his mind. Um, he's smart. He's smart as shit. He knows the game. Um, and he knows how to how to manipulate the game in a way to put his team in the best position to win. Um, so he just his presence on the floor, getting us into our stuff, um, getting us organized. It's what he does. It's what he's done all year long. And uh, that's invaluable. Doesn't show up on a stat sheet. Uh, you know, it won't show up on, you know, anything uh, outside of just if you know the game and if you're on the floor with him, you can feel it. So um, having him out there is 
invaluable and you know we're gonna we're gonna need more of it okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you i can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can hop into my all-new hyundai santa fe and hit the road with available h-track all-wheel drive and three-row seating my whole family can head deep into the wild conquer the weekend in the all-new hyundai santa fe Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. So, yeah, that clip from Shamit was taken after game five, but, you know, it's still applicable. And look, I mean, the Nets gave it their all, but it wasn't enough. As depleted as they were, Milwaukee was bigger, faster, and more well-rounded over the course of the series. They were the better team because they were the more fortunate team. That's why they won. And with that, let me get to my very special guest, the one and only play-by-play man, Ian Eagle, of the Nets on Yes broadcasts. Here's my interview with Ian. Folks, for my last City Game podcast, so honored to have back the GOAT of all play-by-play broadcasters. Just came off the Western Conference semis between the Jazz and the Clippers for TNT. And you can soon hear him on NFL telecasts on CBS. But you all know him as the voice of the net since 1994. The legendary Ian Eagle is on the Zoom call with me. Ian, thanks so much for coming on with me to help me through these dark hours. <laughs> Steve, my pleasure. Great to talk to you. Obviously, uh, I think both of us felt there would be a continuation of the working relationship because uh, this was a very sudden ending and certainly a gut punch on uh, Saturday night. Well, I, before I get to that, I, I do want to ask you about the feeling you had being able to connect last week You know, with your son, Noah, who works the radio mic for the Clippers. I believe you once told me that your schedule and then the COVID protocols forced you to miss some opportunities when the Nets faced, you know, L.A. So Mm -hmm. I'm guessing you got your Father's Day gift early, right? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Uh, Noah was on the call for Clippers Jazz. I got the assignment for TNT. And the other part of the equation, which made it so special, was that it was the first time He traveled all year. Up until that point, radio announcers were not allowed to go on the road. But in the conference semifinals, the NBA made changes. The arenas and venues made changes. So 
got to have dinner with him a couple of times in Salt Lake City, one time in L.A. So three dinners after not seeing one another for in upwards of 10 months, uh, that that's a breakthrough in a relationship and, and just being able to hang with them more than anything else. The fact that there was this professional connection as well is nice. That was the added bonus, but really at, at the core level, just being able to spend time and share some laughs and share some quality time together. That, that was uh, truly special. Uh, it is wonderful because, you know, my kids had their own concerns about me on father's day after the Nets lost that heartbreaker in game seven, you know, worried that they might have to talk me down from the ledge, but, <laughs> but really, you know, I've been saying all along that, you know, this season has been so crazy with all the injuries and such, you know, that it wasn't necessarily, wasn't necessarily going to be the best team that wins it all, but the luckiest. And the Nets just had no such luck at all. You know, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think it is a fair assessment. And, and I think somewhere along the way, we all realized that it was going to be survival of the fittest. And when James Harden went down early in the series, there was this sense of doom and the fact that they came through through the first two games and looked as sharp as, as they did. I thought to myself, well, maybe they can weather the storm. When Kyrie goes down, you, you realize that at some point they're just not going to have the horses to continue to advance. And it all came to a head. Obviously, uh, we saw in, in game six and game seven in particular, when the Nets needed buckets, when the Nets needed offense, that they couldn't generate it. And that overtime period really hits home. It's the two best offensive teams in basketball statistically. And it's 6-2 in the OT with the Bucks outlasting the Nets. Yeah, kind of ironic though that it's the defense showed up, right? It did. It, it did. Will. And you know, the other part of the equation is we know that there are so many different aspects. And I know you've literally been through every angle, every nook and cranny of this game. But I look back at game three and, and it's hard not to. And that is a game that should have been won. That's a game that belonged to the Nets. They, they had opportunities to win the game, to slam the door shut. To me, Milwaukee was a very fragile team and there's no way they were coming back from an 0-3 deficit. And the fragility popped up even in game seven, where you thought, okay, uh, the Nets are going to get it done. The Durant shot, which was literally a big toe away, a Sergeant Holka strikes reference away from being a series ender and maybe one of the greatest endings ever in a game seven. And then in overtime, when Joe Harris has a chance to make an open three and so much of what happened would have been forgotten with the one make. Not to say that it's erased, but it, it would have been pushed to the side if the Nets were moving on to play in the Eastern Conference Finals. There are so many of those moments. And the odd part, Steve, on a personal level more than anything else, I'm just not accustomed to being at games that I don't call. That is such an unusual role for me. So to experience the highs and lows, the roller coaster ride as a fan, 
in many ways is very different and unique in my experience over the last number of years. And it, it was uh, very much a different kind of way to go through a game. And, and I know uh, how you experienced the games. Uh, yeah, welcome uh, to my world. <laughs> yeah, no, I felt it, Steve. I, I felt like you, you let me in to your world for one night. Uh, I do want to get to some of the horses you mentioned. Uh, first, I'm going to throw Sean Marks a compliment because I think, you know, he was robbed by his colleagues in the voting for NBA executive of the year. Yeah, agree. The guy in Phoenix didn't draft Booker Aiton or Bridges. But, you know, if you want to downplay Marks because of KD, Kyrie, they chose Brooklyn over Manhattan, fine. But, you know, Marks had a lot to do with creating the superior environment in Brooklyn that made the Nets a more desirable destination, you know, after years of proverbial wasteland. I mean, what was your take? I'm with you 100%. I think the way that the Nets have gone about it, if you look at the big picture, it's not close. The race is not close for executive of the year. Now, you could also say that Sean Marks deserves the award, which is not an official award, executive for the last five years. That, that to me is, is the larger scope of how he built the team. And you know, as well as anybody, what he took over. But I do think there has been a bias in play based on the fact that Kyrie and Kevin Durant chose the Nets and then Marks went out and got James Harden. And it probably affects the way people view the other moves that were made, the development that took place with Joe Harris and Spencer Dinwiddie and Karis LeVert and Jared Allen, who are no longer with the team. And the acquisitions that were made during this season, including one that wasn't a part of this Eastern Conference semifinalist, and that's LaMarcus Aldridge. And that's a whole other story based on what the Nets' needs were when they got right down to the nitty gritty of overtime in game seven, where they needed some size and and they needed someone else to, to step forward offensively, especially in the absence of Blake Griffin after fouling out. Uh, to me, yes, Sean Marks was the executive of the year in the NBA, and uh, these are voted on by Sean's peers. So you never quite know what the inner workings are and the dynamic is with the relationship between all of the GMs and uh, basketball operation VPs in the NBA. Yeah, well, I, I agree with you. I thought he should have been executive of the year, but again, uh, I've been on his case for years about, you know, somewhat of a flawed roster construction, you know, with so many guards. And, you know, you talked about, you know, the other horses, you know, do you think that the fit with all the pieces around his three stars, you know, for instance, you talked about Joe Harris, you know, he's getting, you know, he's getting evaluated now, not as a development player, but as a guy who's making $17 million a year. Correct. So uh, what is what is your thoughts on how the pieces ended up fitting around the stars? Yeah, it struck me in game, Steve, that uh, there was not a lot of substitution in game seven. There was not a great deal of trust given to those outside of of the core players. So did you realize, I'm sorry to interrupt. Did you realize that no sub took a field goal attempt? 
I did. And yeah, that is very. Uh, I don't think that's ever happened. I I would have to believe that has never happened. <laughs> Truly, certainly, if you want to boil it down to a game seven in in a series decider, it's never happened. And you might be able to go on a grander scale and say it's it's never happened in general. But for Jeff Green, who was not himself, uh, there's no doubt the the foot was giving him trouble. And Landry Shamit and Nick Claxton, who played a grand total of one second guarding the inbounder, to not have a field goal attempt, it shows you that uh, a couple of things. One, you know, ultimately Steve Nash was going to trust only his core. And I, I would also say that the Mike D'Antoni influence was large, that uh, that often had been a, a Mike D'Antoni philosophy on sticking with your guys and not deviating and uh, by hook or by crook, uh, you're going to get to the finish line with the guys that brought you there. And let's just take Milwaukee as an example. Look, Pat Connaughton, we're not going to remember Pat Connaughton in game seven as much as some other guys, but he made some big shots when it was necessary, when the Nets looked like they were pulling away potentially eight-point lead, 10-point lead, and Connaughton hits a three and little momentum swingers. And I only bring it up because Connaughton was one of the guys that did come off the bench for Milwaukee and provided something. The idea that when you're in a game seven, you need alternative production, and it may not come from someone that you expect. And this happens all the time in sports, not just in the NBA, but in big games and big moments. Uh, for guys that are normally considered on the periphery. So, uh, yeah, it's one of those things that you look back on and say, uh, I think they felt good about their roster moving throughout the season and in the regular season, parts of the playoffs when, when guys step forward. But you do find out about what the coaching staff feels strongly in the biggest moment of the season, and that's a game seven. Yeah, I still lie awake at night wondering why Nick Claxton was used for one second when you know they were getting pounded on the boards. They could have used his energy with the guys playing major minutes, but I guess that's my problem anyway. Well, I think it's a trust thing more than anything else. Do you trust the player in that moment? There's no getting around it. It, it boils down to that. Uh, to me, that's what all of this is based on, and it's trust. Do you believe that player is going to do what you need him to do in a critical moment. And what we find out in a game seven is ultimately uh, what the coaches feel. We, we don't get a lot of insight into that. Certainly with the, the lack of uh, interaction between media and even coaching staff, you know, I could just tell you from a personal standpoint, I didn't see any of the assistant coaches this year. You, you just don't have access. Right. They were entering at a different part of the arena. Uh, they were obviously in a different zone. Conversations that take place, at least between broadcaster and assistant coach, oftentimes are not necessarily geared towards the team that they're coaching for, but sometimes general philosophy and sometimes just life and sports in general. And all of those conversations were missed because we just didn't have a chance to interact. So you don't really know where 
where the coaching staff was coming from this year because there was no interaction between media and coaching staff. All right, I, and I got one more for you because I don't want to take up too much of your time. You know, the Brooklyn fans, you know, they kind of get a bad rap. It's the way it goes. I mean, they'll never match the numbers the Knicks get. Well, not in my lifetime, at least. But, you know, I thought they surely lived up to the moments in these playoffs. You know, from where I sat, the enthusiasm in the building, you know, exceeded the, you know, the next best was 2014, you know, in that heat, you know, against the Raptors in the heat, you know. But back then, you know, if they played the Celtics in the first round, you know, the Boston fans would have overrun the building and that Correct. didn't happen. So my question to you then is how sustainable do you think this is? I mean, you know, do you get a sense that the franchise really converted a significant chunk of people to becoming real Nets fans? Or, you know, are we destined to go back to normal when, you know, the big three move on? Yeah, I think there's a misconception that had been out there, Steve, that the Nets were trying to convert Nick fans. And that really was not the case. And it's never been the case. Although I think previous regimes looked at the Knicks as the competition and the measuring stick. And I don't think this regime does. And I do believe that's a, a big difference between this iteration of the organization and previous versions of it. So as fans get caught up in the comparisons and Nick fans and net fans going back and forth on social media, I understand you know, the rhetoric of it, but I don't think it's based in reality. I think what this franchise has tried to do is build some inroads in Brooklyn, uh, try to convince people that live in the area that, hey, this might be a nice option. And for those that had been on the fence, maybe not even huge sports fans, something to get behind, something within the community. Then as you plant the seeds, you get younger fans. And that's what I've felt over the last nine years, that it has skewed a little bit younger. And a, a kid that was seven or eight when the Nets came to town and they were in that impressionable phase of trying to figure out what kind of fan they're going to be. Now they're 15, 16, 17, and they are a bit more in charge of making their own decisions about who they want to be and eventually how they want to spend their money. So to answer your question, yeah, I, I do think it is sustainable if the constant comparison is going to be to Madison Square Garden and the New York Knicks. Well, you're going to fall short just in sheer numbers and history. I think where we get caught up is in these two team cities, L.A. and New York for the NBA, you know, living vicariously a bit through my son's experience in Los Angeles with the Clippers. And my son grew up a Nets fan, a true blue Nets fan. He has felt a lot of similarities in how the teams are viewed and how the fan bases are viewed, how Laker fans see Clipper fans, how Nick fans see Nets fans. There's a constant derision. There's a constant needling of you're not real because you don't have the history of the other team. And that's just silly. You know, it's just a, it's an open sore. And 
I don't see that in Orlando. I don't see that in Miami. I don't see that in Milwaukee. I don't see that in Sacramento because they don't have a second team. So they don't deal with that sort of thing. If the question is whether or not you can feel something when you go to the arena, something that you haven't felt before, the answer is a resounding yes. And all it takes is to actually go. Most people are judging it. Oh, I didn't like the audio on uh, the national broadcast. Well, that's not the same. <laughs> it's not the same thing. <laughs> Making an assessment in your man cave in Staten Island is not the same as actually being there in Brooklyn and experiencing it. Uh, so to any of those people, I would say, hey, try to go to a game and, and try to feel it for yourself as opposed to uh, just speculating on what you think it is. Well, Ian Eagle, I've been a fan of yours since, you know, the darker days in New Jersey when I used to joke with you that uh, you should start off your broadcast. Hey, Steve, I'm in Minnesota today. <laughs> you know, they, they say in television, Steve, it's, it's really important to visualize one person when you're broadcasting, <laughs> when you're looking into the camera from here on out every net game. I'll just visualize you. Ugh. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Put that image in your head, but uh, I really appreciate you doing this. You really are the best in the biz. You know, um, the thing I'm going to miss most about this gig is not having the opportunities to talk to you and all the, really all the other wonderful members of the Nets media universe. You know, you don't need to hear it from me, but you know, I wish you continued success and I can't wait to listen to your calls again uh, in the fall on CBS. And of course the yes network. Thank you so much, Ian. Steve, if I could uh, say one last thing, it's been great getting to know you better over the last several years. And what you know, most people don't understand, and nor should they, what takes place in a normal setting of a game pre-pandemic, and hopefully now moving forward, is the, the back and forth prior to a game in the media room. And the sharing of ideas and opinions and getting to know people on a human level. Of course, the basketball is what attracted me to this job. And I've been doing it for so long now. I've gotten used to the basketball side and how to prepare for a game, uh, the emotions that are required to call the game, the highs and lows, uh, and how to perform in the moment. The part that has been missing over uh, the last year and change has been the interaction and the stuff that I truly appreciate is getting to know people like you, Steve, and, and talking on, on a level that reminds you why you do this and why it means so much to people. So uh, you ingratiated yourself to everybody because you're a terrific guy and you're really smart and you know what you're talking about. And please don't forget that uh, people <laughs> well, weren't just, so they weren't being nice just to be nice. Uh, people, people were, were talking to you because you had something to say and because what you had to say had value and it's still going to have value moving forward. And I know you think you're not going to be at the games anymore. I, I, I really believe uh, there's going to be a way for you to be there eventually again. So I, I think this is just goodbye for now. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm you know, choking up right now, but uh, great to talk to you, Ian. I'll let you get on your way. And thanks. I'll talk to you soon. All right.
Thanks, Steve. See you soon, buddy. Wow. The bird is the goat of sportscasting. I don't care what CBS or Turner says. Thank you again, Iron Eagle. Amazing spot. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. All right, now let's hear what you had to say after this net season came to a crashing halt on Saturday in this final edition of the City Game Podcast Listener Mailbag segment. Leading off, we have at NY Game Life who asked, how can you not call a timeout with six seconds left? What I think at NY Game Life means is the end of overtime when Katie took off with a rebound with about 11 seconds remaining. Because Nash did use a timeout with six seconds before the end of regulation. The difference there was that the fourth quarter timeout occurred off a dead ball. You know, after Brooke Lopez was stuck in the corner and the Bucks got nailed with a 24-second violation. I think it does make a difference when you're starting out against the set defense versus trying to capitalize on breakdowns in early transition. Call a timeout. Maybe have trouble inbounding the ball. Remember game three? was left up to Bruce Brown to make a play. So there is an argument to be made for Nash allowing KD to go on his own. That being said, I do agree with you that these circumstances cried out for a T.O. KD played all 53 minutes. He exerted energy on the defensive possession. Give him a break. Run a play to get him an easier look. That much time remaining, that kind of prayer shot is usually available anyway. So thank you for the question at NY Games Life. In a similar vein, Morris of at Real J A S M O C 
Wondered why no one didn't ask Nash about not calling timeout in the post-game media Zoom. All I can tell you, Morris, is that I was too depressed to raise my hand after Saturday night's game. So if you want to blame anyone, blame me. Not that I would have been called on, by the way, but, you know, seriously, I think there was so much going on given the suddenness of it all that kind of slipped our minds. Should have been asked, but Nash probably would have given the same answer that I gave the previous listener, that he wanted to see if KD could exploit a Bucks defense before it had a chance to get set. I mean, we both could agree to disagree, but... Anyway, thanks for the question, Morris at RealJASMOC. Next up, we had a couple of people very down on Joe Harris, including Nick Chaplin and Andrew Poirier. Guys, I mean, I just asked Ayn about that. And I'm sorry to tell you that the Nets probably aren't going to be giving up on Harris this offseason. All the injuries, you know, I think are giving everyone a mulligan. I mean, if Harris has these same issues next postseason, then yeah, I mean, all bets are off. With a similar snark, my longtime friend Dr. Stephen Cohen of at MW underscore chiropractic asked if this franchise will be resurrecting the old Brooklyn Dodgers slogan, wait till next year. Well, Stephen, if the Nets get one, like the Dodgers in 1955, we can both die happy men. Okay? What else do you want me to say? But thank you, Stephen, for uh, chiming in there. On a more serious note, loyal listener D-Rock wondered how the Nets would have matched up with the other survivors of this tournament, saying, quote, The Bucks escaped the guillotine. Very poetic there, D-Rock. Honestly? It would have come down to health. I definitely think the Nets had a chance to beat all comers with a healthy big three. That was going to happen even if they had slain the Bucks. Harden copped having a grade two hamstring strain, which usually requires a four to six week healing process. This guy was going full bore in two. That's not sustainable. Then Nash said Kyrie had, quote, miles to go before he could get back on the court, you know, with his ankle sprain. Could he have returned at some point in the conference finals? Who knows? So to answer your question as written, D-Rock, I think the Nets would have had trouble against the speed of the Hawks. Though, damn, it sure would have been nice to see Brooklyn with another home court advantage. But I'd have given KD maybe two games where he pulls rabbits out of his proverbial hat like he did in Game 5. But that's really it. D-Rock also asked about DeAndre Jordan's status for next season. Like you said, D-Rock, being an FOK or friend of Kevin comes with some pretty nice advantages. One of them is that nearly $10 million cap hit he'll have for the next two seasons that likely makes him unmovable, unless the Nets part with a draft pick they probably don't currently have to get him off the books. I think this whole discussion goes back to having Harris in the starting lineup instead of a real 3 and D wingman, a guy who can lock up the Chris Middletons without killing your floor spacing. Because you really can't have two non-shooters on the floor like you'd have if you're using Brown as a primary defender. But you can certainly play a Clint Capella type like the Hawks do. Now, Jordan is probably half the player that Capella is at this stage of his career, but he'll probably give you 20 minutes a game next season, and Claxton can give you another 20 minutes. I mean, the Nets lost Game 7 primarily because they only grabbed 62% of available defensive rebounds. That's hideous. What did they give to the Bucks? Like three extra possessions off rebounds of missed free throws? Unacceptable. Yet, that's been the direction of the program since Marks got here. 
So yeah, I think the only thing keeping DJ here will be his relationship with his teammates. But I also don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. So thank you again, D-Rock. Next, we have a Joe Harris defender in At Rich Like Hell who worries that Marks will overreact and trade him. He says that Harris may have been one of the reasons the Nets lost, but he's also a great player who makes them better. Now, at Rich Like Hell, I agree with most of what you said, but he's yet to prove he's a great player. You know, he stunk up the joint two years ago against the Sixers as well, so that makes two out of three playoff series where he was a huge liability. I'm not counting the bubble last year where he had to leave after game two to attend to a family matter. But I'm always reminded of the lesson I got from Warriors GM Bob Myers at an MIT Sloan Analytics conference that NBA executives have separate evaluations for playoff performers versus regular season stars. And so far, Joe is a regular season star. Three-point champion, definitely has a ton of value, works hard at other aspects of his game. You want guys like that on your club. But the playoffs are about adjustments. And the keys to finding those is to identify who and how you can attack your opponents. Now, I thought Harris did a pretty good job on Holiday in Game 7. But you could tell that the Bucks were certainly targeting Harris on ND and got him out of his comfort zone when he was lining up for three-pointers. Some of it is a mental thing with Harris and some of it is his physical limitations. Like I said before, I don't think Mark's panics this summer. But we really don't know what machinations are going on with KD and others behind the scenes. So it'll be interesting. But thanks at Rich Like Hell. So let's do a couple more for some loyal listeners who snuck them in before the bell. Eddie Limage at Limage Eddie asked my prediction for the Nets front court next season, given that Green and Griffin are unrestricted free agents. So, Eddie, you know, this is all a wild guess here since both players told the media on Saturday's post games that they weren't even thinking about the next steps. The other variable is that we don't have any inside knowledge as to how much owner Joseph Tsai wants to dip into his pockets to pay luxury taxes. Yes, he said he's on board to pay some so they can have his three stars, but is he really willing to extend himself to keep Green and or Griffin? So we really don't have any clues about the Nets offseason. Well, we know that Adrian Wojnarowski has already reported that Spencer Dinwiddie is opting out of his contract as expected. So it's pretty safe to assume that he'll be headed elsewhere. Meaning the only mystery is if the Nets can finagle a sign and trade somewhere to get a trade exception. Because they have no money to replace anyone heading out the door. So yeah, I think the Nets would like to keep both their free agent bigs. And you included restricted free agent Bruce Brown in there because he's a role man on offense, but he can't really guard a big on a regular basis. But include him too in this discussion. Griffin is guaranteed a massive amount of money from his Pistons buyout, so maybe he'd be willing to accept less to stay, unless other factors come into play like where he wants to live. But again, I have no idea. As for Green, I think he wants to get paid something more than the minimum this time. So unless Brooklyn dips into its taxpayer mid-level exception of about $5.9 million, you know, he, he might be gone too. Because remember, the actual cost to decide for that would be around $36 million when you include the tax, according to ESPN's Bobby Marks. So here's my guess. 
Griffin and Brown stay. Green and Dinwiddie go. Thank you, Eddie Limage at Limage Eddie. And finally, had to get this in from loyal listener Corey Cantor at CBC 727, who of course submitted a trifecta, though the first I already dealt with about Harris and the second was on the free agents they needed to resign. Besides the players I just mentioned, others that are free agents, TLC, Tyler Johnson, and Mike James, none of them are necessary. Better to build back better, to borrow a phrase. More balance in the roster. You don't need Chris Gioza, Tyler Johnson, and Mike James. How about bringing in some size? Now, you know, it's really too soon to know who's going to be available with all the player options yet to be exercised. But even then, the downside here is that even if all those go to market, the class is pretty weak. The top wings are probably Tim Hardaway Jr. and Kelly Oubre. I don't see either of them being targeted for here. Remember, the Nets are very limited in what they could spend as a luxury taxpayer. Even a guy like Rashawn Holmes is going to be too expensive. I think Marks's best play, maybe to wait until the buy art market comes again. People forget that this team had LaMarcus Aldridge on board, and then he was forced to abruptly retire with a heart condition. Would that have solved Brooklyn's rebounding woes in Game 7? Fortunately, we'll never know. And that's all you guys wrote in this final edition of the 2021 City Game Podcast Listener Mailbag. Thank you to all of you who responded to my Twitter, please. So before I sign off for the last time, I just wanted to tell you guys what a dream it's been to be covering the Nets for WFAN over these last nine years. These podcasts were literally a labor of love. It wouldn't have been possible without my dear friend Eric Spitz, who set me up with the job for blogging about the Nets, Jets, and Devils. Of course, the Nets had just moved out of my home state of New Jersey at that time. And honestly, I had to think about it because the road trips to Philly are far more convenient than to Brooklyn. But still, you know, having this opportunity to be a conduit to you Nets fans, to ask players, coaches, and GMs the questions you want answered, I mean... That has been my fantasy camp. I'll never forget Kevin Garnett's response when I asked him about a sequence when he rotated on and off the court, you know, thinking he might have been injured. And he said, just following directions, dog. Just following directions. When I asked Joe Johnson about getting double teamed one game and then he turned to me like he was angry and said, what the bleep was that about? Before, you know, he smiled and then answered my question. Having that level of access... Gave me the motivation to start a podcast for WFAN. It was my in. Of course, I knew absolutely nothing about podcasting, so I first approached the terrific John Schmelk, gave him the idea of a joint Nets-Knicks podcast. I mean, that guy's a true pro broadcaster who could act as more of a lead host while I helped out with commentary and booked many of the early guest appearances. I came up with the name City Game, and we had a nice little run as a duo before... You know, we both decided that talking about both teams each episode is getting a little awkward. John, being the tremendous person that he is, helped me set up my little basement shop here while he seamlessly transitioned to his Bank Shot podcast. As you can probably tell, I'm more of a writer than a podcaster. But like I said, I, I felt the edge I always had over some very entertaining Nets-centric shows. 
was my access. Virtually all the clips I use in these shows are my own questions. In a rare exception, I use one from Daily News writer Stefan Bondi, you know, where Kyrie Irving made his infamous glaring comment on the Nets roster last season. But, you know, in reality, I was standing right next to Bondi outside the locker room in Philadelphia at that moment and got the actual audio. And more important to me personally, that access allowed me to get to know all the wonderful people who cover this team in the media. Honestly, there were some years where my sole enjoyment from trekking to Brooklyn for these meaningless games was getting to talk to these fine folks in the Nets media room. You've heard from so many of them over the years, but just this season, I've had all these people on. From the Yes Network, Ian Eagle and Michael Grady. From WFAN and the Nets Radio Network, Chris Carino and Tip Capstro. From the New York Daily Newspapers, Yogi's Greg Logan of Newsday and Brian Lewis of the New York Post, and young gun Christian Winfield of the Daily News. And then there were all the internet writers, like Alex Schiffer of The Athletic, Brian Mahoney of the Associated Press, Mike Mazio of Forbes, Michael Scotto of Hoops Hype, your own Weitzman of Fox Sports, and of course all the great people at NetsDaily.com, from Mr. NetsDaily himself, the grand poobah Bob Windrum, to all his rising stars and his stable of writers like Matt Brooks, Billy Reinhardt, and last but not least, the former Nets Daily superstar who now runs the Association Newsletter, my dear friend Anthony Puccio. That's quite an extensive list. But, you know, I've always felt this show isn't complete without these guests who generously donated their time for me. I am forever grateful to them. Can't thank them enough as well as the Nets public relations staff who allowed me into their world, all of my editors at WFAN who posted these episodes, and most of all, to all you listeners who have supported me through these 82 episodes over the last three years. So for one last time, I'm Steve Lichtenstein of WFAN.com saying thank you for listening to the City Game Podcast. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.